Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and just reconnecting with people who see the world the same way that you do and just accept you as you are. So that's what we've actually created with our Camp GLP experience. We've brought together this lineup of inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship and writing to meditation, pretty much everything in between. And it's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas to live and work better and to fill your heart and with this rare opportunity to create you know, the type of friendships and stories you thought you pretty much left behind decades ago. And it's all happening at the end of August, just 90 minutes from New York City. And more than half, actually well more than half the spots are already gone at this point. So be sure to grab your spot quickly because our final $100 early bird discount ends June 15th, 2016. After that, it goes up to full price. So you can learn more at goodlifeproject.com slash camp or just click the link in the show notes now. Does your essential sense of yourself come undone? by what it is you're reaching for. If it does, right, it's sort of like if you become untethered from your your basic ground, 
then that's grasping. And if, on the other hand, there's a sense of that reach actually enlivening you, even if it causes you to stretch, right, then that's aspiration and, and that's our evolutionary call. When I was thinking about how I would introduce this week's guest, Angel Kyoto Williams, if you look all over the web, if you look at her public profiles, you'll see various different labels. Zen Buddhist priest is the one that's most often used, teacher, practitioner, somebody who's an activist and a champion of rights. But during the conversation, it became really clear that in her own words, she's kind of in a post-everything state where those labels are kind of dropping away and she's just exploring something bigger in life right now. The conversation, <laughs> we went into the, the deep end of the pool really fast and we kind of uh, backtrack about halfway through and fill in um, a lot of her remarkable journey. This was a conversation that really covers a lot of ground and answers or doesn't necessarily answer, but it speaks to some of the big, big, deep questions that many of us have about how to live a good life. So I hope you enjoy. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. It's funny. I have a past life as a lawyer. And one of the guys that I started with, <laughs> you know, like, in that, like there were six of us that started at the SEC, like, you know, like a bazillion years ago. Uh -huh. One of the guys is this really funny guy. He grew up in Queens. And his claim to fame was he was the top salesperson at Crazy Eddie back then. And uh -huh. so his claim to fame, he said he got That's a stint. my era. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm 50. Uh-huh. So his claim to fame was when he got a standing ovation from the entire sales team. When, and this is so awful. When he sold a $25 extended warranty to somebody who was buying a $20, like Walkman. <laughs> yeah. This was like back in yeah. the, like the crazy the Eddie days also. Yeah, yeah. It's like everyone. I was, it was sort of, yeah, that was my, that was my era. And yeah. it was when they crashed. Right. Like right at the time they were like, sort of like they were the thing. And then I was there right when it went down. Yeah. And that, yeah. they crashed hard. <laughs> and they crashed hard. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that's like a big it's very, public. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's a, like a wonderful life of like, you know, really eclectic experience of New York. Yeah. You know, that gives rise to like how I live in the world now. <laughs> right. Really, well, yeah. Because, you know, sales and. Which is so interesting, though, because you grew up in mostly Queens or mm, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. Yeah. Oh, so you kind of like all real boroughs. Bounce from. that's like Bronx that's what was really happening. Right. Bronx is coming along with Staten Island. It's just funny. Get a scissor. <laughs> we lived up in Riverdale for a couple of years, and so nobody outside of New York like had any idea. With us. So if people asked, I'd be like, "Well, I live in the Bronx," and then every once in a while, if I I actually like you know said that to somebody who really grew up in the Bronx and they're like, oh, we're in the Bronx. I'm like, Riverdale. That's like, it's not the Bronx. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't get cred for that. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, most of my sort of, my real formative years were in Tribeca. Ah. So then I became like a complete downtown snob and I'm just like, oh, that's Bridge and Tunnel. 
Yeah, yeah. And so then it's right. Because like, that was those were the days. Yeah. So yeah. wait, when were you in Tribeca? Like, what time? When was that? Oh, in some ways, I'm still in Tribeca. My since my mom moved there in '77. Ah, uh, she's still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that has changed since since the '70s. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of a, it was a bit of remembering. It was like a bit of a, a nowhere land in the '70s, and now nowhere. it's it like a bit of it was right. a nowhere. It was a total right. nowhere land. There were just these three buildings. The, yeah. these, this complex that they. They set up and put, you know, 39-story units, three of them, yeah. and, you know, roughly 10 apartments. So, you know, they just sort of chunked like, you know, 1,200, you know, family units into the middle of nowhere. Right. But we grew up with, you know, Robert De Niro like across the street. Yeah. It's just sort of like, you know, sort of like our guy, you know, he's just like a right. you know, neighborhood He was guy. the local. Yeah, yeah. And then sort of like watched it as it started to do something else and- JFK Jr. lived there, and Daryl, you know, I sort remember. of like see Daryl Hannah and him together. Yeah. And, you know, it was you know, it's just like, oh, we're so. So it sort of made me, you know, sort of blase about like, yeah, <laughs> I've watched them grow up, and I watched them, you know, it's like, yeah, Harvey's down in his bathroom again, <laughs> right, right. and you know, a very New Yorker, like, eh. right, because you know, somewhere between that kid thing where you didn't want to gush and. Uh, but we also got to watch them, you know, right. we sort of watched them like grow and but we also watched the neighborhood sort of consume the the lower income people, which is how my mother got in the neighborhood. Mm. They did it was Mitchell Lama. Oh yeah. Oh so I know that those which, are the big buildings like right along yeah. yeah, oh I know the ones you're talking about, right? Yeah, we watched you know, Borough Manhattan Community College was a big sandbar. Yeah. It was, it was nothing. Yeah. We used to go out and play there. And on like what was nothing. Right. And so now when I go over there and I, you know, see like Hudson River Park, I'm like, this was water before. <laughs> Where did they get this from? So it's fascinating because not only did I watch like the area change, it like expanded its yeah. footprint in a way that is sort of, you know, mind boggling when I knew that I would like look out on my terrace and the water was right there. Right. You used to have this thing called Art on the Beach and it was like these like funky artists would go out and it was like basically beach that was right there on the west side it was still called west side highway right it's really yeah it's an amazing thing to watch and bless her heart she's managed to stay on and my, my mother would probably yeah she'd probably leave the country before she would live anywhere else uh, at this uh, point so she's die hard <laughs> she's die hard because she it, you know it's sort of it's an interesting thing it sort of has um affected her class sensibilities in many ways hmm. right and so that how she, so i'm taking deeper into that you know she's like can't live in the hood mm. just like you know her income never changed dramatically but her sensibility of like what's the space that's around her the sort of sense of a uplifted space you know they began to build these you know beautiful parks and you know yeah. tribeca was clean you know pretty much always and it you know and so she she just she knows where she comes from, but she couldn't go back there. She feels the sort of, in the Shambhala Buddhist community, like, you know, it's sort of downgraded, the setting sun vibe of other places. Right. You know, this, the convenience, you know, you walk out your door, like everything is right there. The world is literally at your feet. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's amazing. Every once in a while, we, we keep thinking about leaving the city. Yeah. And Good I, luck with that. I know it's funny because I grew up right outside the city and we've been in you know, the city proper for oh, 30 years now. And it's like I made the comparison to like the mafia. It's like every time you try and get out, it keeps pulling you back in. It's like, yeah. it's so, there's a sensibility and an energy and a vibe to New York that on the one hand is crushing. Yeah. 
And on the other hand is like kind of defining yeah. and hard, really brutally hard to leave. Yeah, it is. It's so. It's very true. In many ways, I never left. You mm. know? And so my body is there. My stuff is there. But, yeah. but I live, my heart lives here. Yeah. So let's fill in a little bit of the gaps. So you came up in between Queens, Tribeca, and Brooklyn. What were you into as a kid? I'm curious. Queens, Brooklyn, Tribeca, and then a little more Brooklyn is a, in that order. Got it. What was I into as a kid? You know, it depends on which one I was in. Mm. And so what I was in Queens, I lived in Lefrak City, which was like the United Nations. Yeah. And I was into just the amazing experience of people from so many different cultures and backgrounds and, you know, just all in a mosh together and difference was the norm. Mm. We just took it as like, that's what it is. My best friends were Moroccan and Cuban and my sitter was, you know, South Asian and we just, it just wasn't a thing, you know, so you went into people's houses, friends' houses, and there were like different smells and, you know, different foods and we ate different foods. And I grew up with that sensibility and also the sense of these common spaces in which people would come together and converge because that's how the Lefrak City was. Yeah. Born. And so for those that are not familiar with Lefrak City and say, so I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's this really unique, it's almost like a city within a city it with is. its own sort of like, you know, public commons within the, these groups of towering buildings. So it's, I can completely see that. It's like you're living in your own sort of like mini ecosystem or, or yeah. you know, like, uh, did you have a sense and that school, a school was like built, you know, yeah, like all part of it, like yeah. all part of it, you know, you yeah. walked everything. Did you have a sense at that point that sort of like your world was the world? Of course. Yeah. Well, no, I had a little bit of a sense of that, except my mother and father split very early. Hmm. And so then I would go and visit my mother's family and my my mother actually lived across the street, though, interestingly enough, mm. not in Lefrak City. And so I had a sense of like the there was this other world that was really segregated mm. and and different and harsh in some ways that I had to grapple with. Yeah. And I would visit out into those worlds. Well, those were the real worlds where I was, was the real world. It was like, oh, those other places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, though, That's to start to have that experience at a young age. It seems like there's a certain amount of foreshadowing there also in sort of like your life path. Absolutely. <laughs> because then my, my dad met someone and we moved to Flatbush, Brooklyn. Mm. And it was Flatbush, Brooklyn, I would say, at the beginning, really at the um, surge of West Indians, really in that, that whole area transitioning. Mm. And so Flatbush, Brooklyn, around Linden Boulevard and... We still had Hasidic Jewish run bagel places and yeah. lots of Italian run pizza shops. And so there was still the vestiges of the Italian Jewish community there. But there was also the big rise of West Indian Americans. And it was an utterly different experience for me to be in the midst of people that were not only really different uh, West Indian Americans and African American communities, and I was really kind of had a mixed race sensibility, mm-hmm. were very different and also invested in how different they were. Right. And so there was a very sharp, like, you're different, you're a Yankee, and huh. we're different. And there was a lot of, you know, messy, like, 
class oppression induced you know internalized oppression stuff about yeah. you know you all are lazy we're better you know meaning the you know black americans were lazy and and the west indians were often you know better and hmm. this sort of like british you know influence and at the same time there were this was not far from erasmus high school where barbara streisand went to right, high right. school and and uh, but the neighborhood had become degraded over time and there was a there was a harshness to the city i think that had come over the city you know by that time and a lot of you know roving gangs of young men of color and and, and black men that were you know doing sort of you know participating in sort of that that gang gang mentality you know or the the what did we call it at the time it was um pack mentality mm, yeah and, you know, grabbing people and stealing their sneakers, you know, was the age of the brand, right? And so you had like your Adidas sneakers or your, you know, Azad or your, right? this is like, you know, your labels, your Jordache jeans and like all of that was hitting people. And it was hitting communities that didn't have the money to actually access a lot of those things. It sort of created this, this wanton desire for the appearance of being part of a different class that then expressed itself as, you know, grabbing people tr trying to grab things and yeah. asser asserting their, their strength, you know, and I, I would say that they were asserting their sense of loss and grief about what they didn't have by organizing these kinds of ways. But for me, it was just hideous. I just, I spent the entire three years of my time living mostly full time in Brooklyn hiding behind comic books. I'd walk into this little strip, you know, from where I lived on Linden to where my school was on Parkside, just with my head down, mm. looking at a comic book and just hoping no one would bother me the whole time. Nah. Yeah. You know, you could imagine that this is something that like you thought was the case in your own, you know, imagination. Years later, I opened a, a cyber cafe and it was called Coco Bar. Right. And it was very early. And we'd open it. And there was, at some point, a woman walked in. And she looked at me. And I recognized her. And she recognized me. And her eyes lit up. And my I was like, oh. And I recognized her. She was from the, my middle school. You know, so it was basically <laughs> kind of middle school. Her eyes lit up. And at first, it was a smile. And then suddenly, her face dropped. And she paused. And she said, the first thing out of her mouth was, they were so mean to you. Oh. And, oh, yes. And it was so affirming. Yeah. To actually be able to say, yes. Yeah. That was my experience. <laughs> and I didn't just make it up. And it had this, you know, very complex mix of, yes, oh, how terrible that any child should have had to withstand that. And, and also... How affirming that that just was. It wasn't my imagination. I hadn't kind of made it up. And, yeah. and in many ways, I think it it actually gave me space to release that that experience hmm. and, and the tension and you know I think anger that I felt about it. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting when I hear stories like that. I sometimes and it, it's kind of probably a useless question, but it, it always comes back to me when I hear stories like that about chance moments that create almost a, like an instant change mm. like my brain always goes to this place of what if that moment hadn't happened mm -hmm. you know and again it's i don't know what how you follow yeah. that through but that's always you know there's 
I'm always sort of asking those questions, like what, like there's this moment that just awakens you and acknowledges you and lets you, gives you what you need to let go of something and move or move through it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think what the wonderful thing is about that is that if you develop a sense of relationship with your life, yet you look for those moments, they actually surface more and more often. Mm. I think they're available more often than we tend to see. And and so it's almost a pivot in, in terms of how you relate to your life rather than they're entirely by chance that you actually open yourself and make yourself more available to see. Because I've actually had a, a few of them, actually quite a few of them. And I realize it's, it is because I, I hold a stance that is open to not only receiving them, but then to actually do something with them. And that's the key thing, because I could have had that and just blurred over it, but I really held it as a sense of like, oh, and okay, and what do you do with this, right? And it, for me, I took it to the place of really being able to say, oh, wow, that, that actually helped. I had a lot of sadness around that, a lot of anger, and a lot of it shaped a way in which I thought of my sense of value, and I can let that go. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And I love the notion of not just chalking it up to waiting for those moments of serendipity to come, but actually saying that you participate, like they're probably all around you all the time. Mm -hmm. So part of your job is to actually start to open yourself to them. There's a study that was done a couple of years back by a guy named Richard Weissman. He was curious about luck. Mm. And so he did this fascinating test where he gave a newspaper to two groups of people, one group that self-identifies being very lucky in life Mm. and another self-identifies being unlucky in life. And he basically said, you have three minutes, you know, like, tell me how many pictures are in the newspaper. And the unlucky group, for the most part, took about the full three minutes and, you know, like said, okay, the number is 42. And the lucky group took a few seconds and said the number is 42. Mm. And the difference is, was at the end, when you flip open the newspaper, it was a special paper on the inside front cover in large block letters was a message that said something like, there are 42 pictures in this newspaper, stop reading. What he found was that the people who self-identified as lucky opened themselves to the possibility of something beyond this very narrow focused task. And the people who self-identified as unlucky were just so hyper-focused and weren't willing to consider the possibility of anything that was outside of the narrowly defined task that they close themselves to it. And so really valid, it's like, that's a, the same thing, what you're talking about. Yeah. Everything shapes how you see and, and how you filter the world. And I think we have been very, very wrongly trained to think that we, you know, just like we see the same things, you know, within, within some reasonable mm. limit, that there are things that are just factual. Right. And, that it's just not true. We are, we are products of like our experience and our shaping and our orientation and what we've been offered and what we've been given. And, and then we then have the opportunity to say, and now what will we do with that? Mm. Right. And the idea that we have a limited set of things that we can do with that, there's a limited set of configurations is just completely wrong. It's like, I say like it's upside down thinking. And it's intentional thinking, I think, in many ways. I think there's an aspect to our culture that requires a good, significant number of people 
to have a closed view of what's possible for them. So this society doesn't work. Yeah, but is I mean, is it rooted in the desire for order, or like, what's your sense of that? Sure, I, you know. <laughs> Let's see if we're ready for this. Yeah. You know, I think um, capitalism is necessitates order and it necessitates. And when I say capitalism, I don't mean trade. I don't mean you know. I mean human beings have been trading for you know since the beginning of time. Sure. But kind of parasitic capitalism that is organized around the flow of resources to land in the coffers of, of like a very you know few number of people. It requires order and it requires the capacity to be efficient and to quickly value people and therefore to quickly devalue people. Mm. And the best way that you can quickly devalue people is have them do that for you, right? And so if people just are devaluing themselves, then you have to do a lot less sorting as to who it is that can rise to the top, right? You have most people that are just cutting themselves out already. They sort themselves into a kind of class or position in life that is what is available to them. And that's the, it's like the, the pictures that, that you see that they, people saw on the page or didn't see on the page, right? It's like, this is what I see as possible for my life. And that's what's available to mm. me. And almost how dare you suggest there's something more or different that, that I would be entitled to something different. And yet conversely, which is absolutely a phenomenal aspect of this society, we have a kind of constant dangling of this, like you could be this other thing. And what it actually does to us is make us uh, vote and organize ourselves against our own interests with this hope that we're going to get this impossible brass ring that's like way out there somewhere. It's a fascinating, if you really think about it, it's like a fascinating converse relationship. We both keep ourselves in a very narrow scope and, and field and we sort ourselves, you know, down and, and keep ourselves sort of down river, so to speak. And on the other hand, what we need in many ways to do is, you know, to organize ourselves and to come together and to, to push back at, at forces that would, would have many of us kept down. We don't do that, right? Because in some ways we, we want to be that, you know, that like big, completely separate other. Yeah. That's, you know, impossibly different from everyone else. Right. And it's, it's certainly, I mean, massively glorified at the same time, you know, in this country who get, who do you see in the media every day? Yeah. It's the big impossibly different others. Yeah. You know, it's the icons who are the absolute outliers. And yet we all aspire. We're told that that's our aspiration. While we simultaneously yeah, yeah. hold ourselves back. Right. So people are like, duality. I don't want the like mega wealthy to be taxed because what if I'm mega wealthy one day? I wouldn't want to be taxed <laughs> like that. And it's like, well, but but right now, it's I mean, it's a really amazing system that is like resilient and self-correcting and it and it keeps us organized in that way. That's why I love work like this and work like what you do where we mm. sort of bust the myths. Yeah. I keep deepening around this word possibility and it's becoming yeah. more and more the, the focus of my exploration and study mm. and, and work. And and it is a deeply complex word and, and just idea. Yeah. You know, it's like, and you're laying out these sort of two extreme <laughs> variations of complete stifling and then complete, you know, a, a radically different, you know, like, but, but I think the central thing is not, I think, but I, here's my question is, you know, like, is one of the central explorations, our willingness to reclaim how we identify 
possibility and the way that we want to exist in the world. Rather than sort of surrendering to ideals that are moved into our minds through a, a lot of um, noise. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's exactly it. I, I think that there is a way in which we can gradually or dramatically, and it's some of those, you know, sort of using those stepping stones of those moments of, you know, opening and, and of awakening of, and glimpsing possibility and saying, oh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to stand on this for a while and then begin to look for the next stone, right? And then suddenly we see that the water that we think exists between us and, and whatever great possibility is, is, is actually just underneath what looks like water. It's paved with all of these stepping stones of moving closer and closer and we can cause them to reveal themselves. Right. It really is about a stance. And I, I think about that in terms of, and, and I was thinking about it a lot, of course, because this is called Good Life Project. I've been thinking about like, how do I think about the way that I orient to my life, right? So it's not in some particular sphere. It's not in the sphere solely of spirituality or religion, or it's not in the sphere of of any single thing, right? It's not in, solely in the sphere of like, dealing with social oppression and, and intractable social issues. It also in the spheres productivity and how I take care of my body. Mm. And it's really like, I thought if I could think of a way of like, what is that stance? How am I positioning myself that gives me kind of like my litmus test question about pretty much everything? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm choosing to stand in a liberated life. Right. And so everything then I start to measure it against this sense of, is this moving me closer to a liberated life? And everything comes up against that question for me. So even when I have moments where I'm like, you know, trying to decide what am I going to wear in the morning, <laughs> I'm like, is this, is this a liberating that, shirt? Yeah. Is, well, is the energy that yeah, I'm yeah. spending on this, right, moving me closer or further from a uh, liberated life? And so the decision making is actually the thing. It's not yeah. that which shirt is more liberated. Right, right. That, that might show up, right? But today I have my Black Lives Matter <laughs> t-shirt on and that it was just instant and it showed up for me. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to be wearing. Yeah. And, but when I find myself sort of like churning and energy is ex being expended, that's not that's not generative and not giving back to me. Right. So it, is that how you would for yourself define a liberated life? You know, I'm sort of familiar with the concept through the study of yoga and through uh -huh. like, the idea of a jivan mukti. Yeah. And that the idea is not so much transformation, but appealing away of that which allows the essential you, which has always been there, to become liberated. Right. But I'm curious, sort of, is that similar to your sense of a liberated life, or would you sort of? Describe it differently. Yeah, I think that it's very close. It's a sense of what is hindering my most vital expression, hmm. my most vital expression. And the truth is, as a result of systems that are organized to have us think of ourselves differently, I don't necessarily know what is my most vital expression. And so that's my charge, is to keep getting further and further along with both simultaneously moving towards what I understand is more vital, but also being willing to be open to the possibility that there is greater and greater vitality right. that's available to me that I'm not even aware yeah. of, and sort of dancing in the place of those things. So I don't have this 
place, as you said, right, transformation. That's like, I'm going to get to this spot. And it's going to be like transformation or awakened, right. period. And, and then it will all be over. But rather, this is a verb, right? I am living. This life thing is a verb. Love is a verb. It's like, it's a really active endeavor. And if I stay active in it, then I realize that it, it, it is moving, right? And the possibility that exists in it is ever present and always recreating itself yeah. around the context that I now find myself in. Yeah. Right? So it's not static. It's not like there's possibility and one day I'll get to possibility. Right. It will keep reorganizing itself. Yeah, I love that. And completely, that's the way I experience life as well. It's just I'm, I'm kind of like really... Do- completely geeking out on what you're saying over here because <laughs> I think there's this notion of, you know, like we've, when I get there, yeah. quote, you know, capital T there, yeah. everything's yeah. going to be good. Yeah. Like that's, and then when you get there, you're like, you know, at that point you had imagined and somebody is like, well, okay, you're there. And you're like, well, but it's just, just a little bit further actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, rather than trying to get to some predefined place, mm. I, I love the notion of looking at life as a series of intentional experiments mm. when you mm. hold yourself open to serendipity. So mm. you're you're like you want to move mm-hmm. but and maybe you have some sense of where you're moving towards, but at mm-hmm. the same time you're not locked into what that has to be and you're open to the possibility that something completely like you said, like you have no idea if it exists yet, could drop and, and yeah. be better. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I think that for me what that does is that removes the kind of obsessive anxiety mm. that we have brought to the notion of accomplishment, right? Sort of becomes then, you know, our spiritual practices, our yoga practices, our meditation, our mindfulness become yet another acquirement, right? So it's something we're going to acquire. And again, I trace that back to like a capitalist mentality, right? That there's something to be acquired. And when you acquire that thing, you know, then you will have freedom or you will have liberation. And so in many ways, it's entirely disruptive of systems that keep us bound actually to choose to be boundless in this way that's yeah it is an intentional experiment like i'm i'm hacking my life all the time i'm hacking mm. my experience of everything all the time where it's just like i'm doing this with the complete whatever it is that i'm doing whatever it is i'm up to making coming up with like the perfect smoothie for me for now right <laughs> you know figuring out where it is by the I way if you live. find a recipe for that perfect smoothie let me know <laughs> yeah, exactly right exactly and doing that and it's like and it is it's going to be utterly perfect for that moment right? And then when it's not, I'll be open and available to the possibility that it's time to change. I I had a, I have a chronic illness. And so I, I wrestled with a period of time at which I had this idea of like what my breakfast was supposed to be, what I needed. Mm. And, and I had to strip that away and open and realize that my body at the time needed something different. And so I needed firm things like, you know, like eggs and toast and, you know, think, you know, like a real sort of breakfast. And, and now I'm in a different place where it's like, oh no, I can actually have a smoothie for breakfast again. And so we have these, you know, all of these things that are telling us like the best thing to do is this. And it's actually not true for us. It's not true for us in this moment. It's not true for our makeup. It's not true for, yeah, it's not allowing us to express our most vital selves. Yeah. I think the listening is, for me, the thing that's underneath all of that. Yeah, I love that. 
just the notion of sort of like a primary, like one of your big jobs is to listen, to observe, to pay attention. Yeah. I think it's huge. It's funny, as, as you're sort of talking about this also, a friend of mine who actually is a functional medicine doc who lives in Berkeley, Chris mm. Kresser, I've had this similar conversation with him where he's like, you know, talking about nutrition or diet. And he's like, it's not just about what diet is right for you, what, you know, how you're going to fuel yourself. You know, like you said, it's, it may be right for that moment. Yeah. But that moment is, is over in the next moment. So a year later, you're a different person. Your needs may be different. So it's that, this idea of holding yourself open to sort of a, a state of constant evolution mm-hmm. and continuing to, like you said, observe and adapt and try and experiment. So, um, we don't do that as, uh, you know, my sense is there's such a profound need to want to lock as much of life down as humanly possible. Yeah. I'm curious. So we should probably fill in a little bit of gaps here because we just dove right into the deep, <laughs> deep end of the pool. You know, coming out of, you know, like your three borough experience in, yeah. uh, in New York City, you ended up somehow discovering Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, Zen. Yeah. So take me there a little bit. Yeah, I'd been doing a lot of thinking about this. So the short story is we had Tower Bookstore still here. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I was already a strange, you know, creature and experienced myself as like not quite this and not quite that. And also accustomed to bridges, accustomed to being able to like bridge worlds that, you know, having to navigate that experience Mm. in in uh, middle school and then in junior high school, they they finally realized I was <laughs> suffering deeply. And where it ended up was a, a school that was uh, right on the border of Chinatown, so it was 90% ethnic Chinese. And so there I was different, you know, utterly different than everyone and made relationship in that, right? And most of who wasn't Chinese was were Latino, and so, mm-hmm. you know, Latinas. And so I was in this sense of difference and what we have to do to relate to multicultural experiences, right, is really open ourselves right, yeah. and broaden. I mean, you have a choice and you can kind of like close down and turn inward and, and sort of lock yourself in your own world. But that wasn't my orientation, I think, for my earlier life. And so I think there's some like beginnings of it must have been there. And the beginnings of being open to something that's really was different for my you know, my background. And so there I was in Tower Records and I ran into this book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And many people have since told me that it's like Greek to them. (laughs) But when Mm -hmm. I read the book, it's by Shunru Suzuki Roshi. It's a classic book. And um, I read the book and I was like, oh, somebody understands my life. And that was the beginning of you know, as many people do sort of hacking my own like meditation practice in a closet with a pillow and, you know, towel rolled up and that kind of thing. And eventually I had the opportunity to go to San Francisco where his uh, original temple is located. And I, you know, hoisted myself up at, you know, some ungodly hour in the morning. This is actually a moment of realizing something is really going on here that I'm willing to get up this early in the morning to go do this. Like I really actually noticed it as I was doing, I was like, wow, that's some significant motivation. And so, you know, there I was, and I came back from San Francisco with my first, you know, real meditation cushion and something different than a rolled up towel. And then my grandfather passed not too long after that. And so I had this sort of beginning foundation of a practice and, you know, was reading and that kind of thing. And I wasn't a terribly religious. I was a good 
classic kind of Western Buddhist in that I sort of tossed the religious aspect aside. And it was, you know, I held it more philosophical. That's why Zen worked for me. It was like, it's philosophical. And mm. I didn't have to acquiesce to the idea that it was religious at all. <laughs> and my grandfather passed and it was just, you know, the world coming out from beneath me. And I had established enough of a practice that when the world came out from beneath me, that the practice was there mm. as the ground. And that was my beginning of really dropping into that as something that I was going to begin to orient my life by. Yeah. Yeah. At around that time also, so this was, was this also around the time that you uh, had your, the brief cyber cafe experience? Yeah, was the this? cyber cafe, yeah, it was, the cyber cafe came a little after Right. The sort of really formation of my practice, and so they lived together. Did you have a sense that your that the practice was going to become as central, or that no. you would essentially become, you know, devoted, and this would become a major part of your life path and your work? No, I was like you know busy being like the part of the black digerati, you know, the <laughs> rising class of like, you know, colored and brown people that were engaging in this bizarre thing, new thing called the internet. Mm. and opened a you know what I called a cyber cafe which was you know way ahead of its time to really you know I, I just thought this thing was going to be you know fantastic and amazing and I wanted it to be accessible to people in neighborhoods you know and and they were taking internet access out of libraries and redlining people in that way and and so I thought that this was a great way I was very entrepreneurial and so I thought this is a great way to bring internet access even though it was early you know we still had bulletin boards and stuff like that and you know figured largely and so no I was busy you know being like the cool New Yorker that's what I, <laughs> that my that was my job it was like to be like hip you know it was not at all it was like this that was my side thing you know the sort of thing I ran off and did on my own but right. I was firmly rooted in you know just being groovy New Yorker yeah so what yeah. tipped the scales then what if I would say I know what tipped the scales as much as I would say I know when the scales were tipped okay and so we had this party and it's like it was a legendary party. So this is Fort Greene, Brooklyn in 1995 So that was when it was really Brooklyn still. Yeah, it was still, it was still Brooklyn still. <laughs> before it turned yeah. to Hipsterville, yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> Long was, before, actually. Yeah. It was coming, though. Yeah. And we had this party. And, you know, it's like folks would roll through because of where we were. And so, you know, like Mum's schemer, you know, poet would come through and Erica Badu would come and like, you know, hang out, and, you know, and it was just sort of like we were all laid back and cool about it. And, you know, just like, yeah, you know, Erica lived, you know, a couple blocks away. And, and so folks would like roll through because it was this like interesting spot, you know, in a place that didn't have enough services yet, not far from Brooklyn Academy of Music. And we had this party and it was for, I think it was a Christmas, it was a New Year's party. And it was an amazing party. It was like, you know, people were just like, you know, it was like throngs of people. It was awesome. And the following year, we were going to have the party again. And I did not go to the legendary party. I went to a silent retreat upstate New York in the, you know, godforsaken cold and was walking around in circles. This is what walking meditation looks like, walking around with circles, in circles, with, you know, about 30, mostly middle-aged white folks. And I was like, 
something has happened. Mm. <laughs> you have changed. And it was really recognizing in, in that moment that the center of my life orientation had shifted. Mm. Yeah. That whatever it was that I was discovering there, which turned out to be me, was more important than the ideas that I had constructed about who I was and who I needed to be. Yeah. So did that trigger sort of a, a more accelerated cascade of your journey into uh, Zen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Zen is kind of funny. You, you do all, all sort of so-called Buddhist practices. I, I think of myself mostly these days as like post-Buddhist, and <laughs> post the whole the whole thing. I like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, just I, like I'm doing my thing. I'm just yeah, I'm just doing my thing. And and that I think for me that's the point, right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm not invested. So Maybe much that's your in, liberated life, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm not invested in the labels. I'm not invested in you know. It's useful sometimes. The titles are helpful, and you know, it helps people orient around me. But it's not how I orient, and so. I'm not so invested in the ideas of, you know, what name you call it, right? It's like, is it getting you closer to a liberated life, mm. right? That's really what's important to me. And at the time, that was, right? And so at the time, it was Zen, at the time, it was Buddhism. And what I was going to say about it is, though, there's this sort of interesting tension of not grasping, right? Right. And because I'm so glad you brought your circle back <laughs> yeah. to that. All right. So yeah. let's go deeper into it. Yeah. Just to say like, and so on the one hand, you're like, oh, like this is my thing. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, but that's grasping. Yeah. And so you're sort of doing this weird, like reaching for it. That's very habitual. Like we want something and we go after it and we like dig into it. And then on the other hand, you have a foundation of the teaching that really talks about grasping as right. something that actually brings up suffering for us. Right. Since this is on the table, now let's go deeper into this because I have a real curiosity and probably a struggle around this. And I'm guessing it's probably not just mine, but probably a lot of the people <laughs> who are listening in, which is the sense, is there a distinction in your mind between grasping and aspiration? Mm -hmm. So I'm bringing up someone who we both know, uh, the Sakyam, Sakyam Mepin Rinpoche. Mm -hmm. You know, he's you know, an awesome human being living just in the world, you know, like as a dad, as a husband, as, you know, like, but also as, you know, the head of a lineage right now. And at the same time, you know, he runs marathons, he's an equestrian, he's a very competitive athlete, mm -hmm. you know, so there's a deep sense of aspiration, like, like there's a 26.2 mile mark in a marathon, <laughs> right? Yes, you know, but even so when I look at our lives and, you know, there's this really interesting tension that I think is always sort of like there, which is that, you know, can you be simultaneously grateful mm -hmm. for where you are, mm -hmm. aware and present, at the same time, want something more or different, and not have that be rise to the level of grasping, but have it be present enough so that it motivates action to create change? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's it. Okay, good. I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> for me, yeah, I mean, for me, that's it. And, um, I think early on, right, we sort of sort through this idea of grasping and we have to kind of discover like what is our grasping and what you grasp after yeah. will merely be aspiration for me, right? I think what it comes down to is do you, right, does your essential sense of yourself come undone by what it is you're reaching for? If it does, right, it's sort of like if you become untethered from your, your basic ground, then that's grasping. And if, on the other hand, 
there's a sense of that reach actually enlivening you, even if it causes you to stretch, right? Then that's aspiration and, and that's our evolutionary call. Hmm. And we can be utterly grateful for exactly where we are. And in fact, we have to be utterly grateful for exactly where we are, exactly as things are in order to strengthen it's if you think of it as a body right you you can reach for something but if you're already kind of like lurched forward and on your tiptoes and that's where you begin from in terms of reaching for something well then you're right then you're you're off balance and you're likely to come apart right your appendages are actually disconnected from your core from the ground of your being but on the other hand if you stand in the ground of your being with gratitude and an honesty and an openness to exactly where you are that's the the physical expression of having your feet on the ground and firmly rooted right your core well engaged and from there, you go for it, mm. right? And your appendages, right, they stay attached. And so you're not overextending, you're reaching, but you're reaching from a place that is rooted to your sense of your core being. And so I, I like to express that in physical terms because a lot of it gets kind of esoteric. Yeah. And people can't really get a clear embodied sense and i would say if anything like my sense of like being post you know whatever is that really i'm rooted in the sense of embodiment right it's like how does this show up and how i show up in the world because i can tell myself all kinds of things about you know my awakening or my wanting my grasping but but really it's like how is it showing up as reflected back at me by the relationships that i have and and what my life is doing. That embodied experience is actually critical because so many of us have the physical memory of trauma and the physical memory of oppression and the physical imprint of limitation, right? And what we're not entitled to or what is not possible. And so to actually practice in a physical way, we actually move that energy through us. And so that our practices become something that's not just in our head, but deeply rooted in our body. And so for me, I try to then start to say to people, so imagine what that would look like if you were reaching for something, but where your starting point was, that, was not rooted in a sense of like gratitude about where you are. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I love the idea of coming at it from an embodied standpoint, because it just makes it so much more relatable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you don't have to go up here to yeah. get it. It's just like actually just touch down, yeah. <laughs> you know. And if so much of our challenge is the way in which we've been programmed and, you know, by, you know, social circumstances, by things that happened in our family, by our, you know, our, you know, our upbringing, if so much of what has happened to us in terms of limiting our vital expression has happened in our mind, using the mind as the sole way in which we try to make ourselves out. I think Einstein had something to say about that, right? That it's inherently flawed, <laughs> yeah. flawed, right? And so the degree to which, and I don't have the, the statistics of the, you know, there's a growing field of mind-body science, of embodied yeah. science that is talking about how much of our experience is actually in our cellular tissue. Yeah, very much so. Right? And no amount of thinking about it is going to move it out uh, of the tissue. I mean, especially in trauma, there's so much work going on now around trauma and PTSD and how if you don't integrate some sort of embodied you know, physical practice into mm -hmm. 
the process of trying to explore and move through it. It's yeah. like it's never going to go. <laughs> We've been working creatures for much longer than we have been these, you know, idle couch potatoes yeah. standing behind a screen creatures. And so I think we're seeing the impact of having moved so quickly beyond millennia of experience in terms of how we actually process and move things through us. We walked, we moved, we we worked, we picked things up, we touched things with our hand, we had a relationship to the earth and to life and mm. and to the reality and, and our connection to all things. And as we move further and further away from that, I think we're seeing the impact of that in terms of how we treat our society and how we treat ourselves and how we treat our planet. Yeah. So powerful. My mind is thinking in so many different directions right now, in a good way, in a good way. So as you sort of move into what's feeling through this conversation, it's sort of like, it, and tell me if I'm off, but it yeah. kind of feels like there's an energy of like you're stepping into something that feels newer or different. It feels like you're in a really deeply exploratory place right now. Yeah, I think I always am these yeah. days. I think that that's part of the, right? I'm in the the really active place of saying like, oh, that's what it is. Yeah. It's totally being in that exploration and utterly happy with the places in which I'm settled, right? And so when I settle down and I sit down, like that's where I am and that's the moment. And then I look up and there's something to explore and I reach out and to explore that. And And for me, I'm... I'm in the practice of looking really intently at the ways in which I have been trained to limit myself and staring those things down. I've done a lot of work with my own sense of suffering, and I think that does a great deal to allow us to break through a phenomenal amount of limitation, particularly limitation around our relationship with other people, the way in which we can project about how other people and external circumstances are impacting our happiness and keeping it from us or our sense of, I like to say more contentment, right? Mm. And, and resilience. And so I've completely divested myself to external circumstances being the the cause and therefore the the having the potential to detract from my my basic sense of contentment with my life and who I am. And that's a very active practice for me. There's another layer of programming, I, I like to call it, that I'm also contending with in a very strong way. Like this is sort of the I would say like the place that I'm putting my attention in terms of my practice around a sense of like where are limits at. And so the word that I'm, I'm actually working with two things. One of them is what you'd recognize from the Shambhala tradition is uplifted, mm. right? So that's a real, you know, just really, you know, dynamic and bright exploration of practice yeah. to be uplifted. But also that has been up undergirded and, I, and it had to come first with the practice of being undefended. And undefended is about like, where are these places in which I'm closing down to other people, to my experience, to my relatedness to life and, and to myself. Yeah, that's and not so, always a fun exploration. <laughs> that's not always a fun Well, I guess you could view it as, you know, like if it's getting me to a place of uplifting and to liberated life, then, yeah. you know, you can reframe the like sort of a, approaching your walls mm -hmm. or your the places you shut down as, well, yeah, there may be some unpleasantness there, but look at where it's, you know, it may, it's going to lead me. Yeah. 
Oh, is fun is the word you say. Yeah, yeah. Not always fun. Oh, you know, I like I give up on that. Yeah, yeah. No, right? clearly. That's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The whole I'm like, the fun big smile thing. As you're it's so about overrated. This, right? right? <laughs> this this notion that like things are supposed to be like fun no. or always pleasant is part of like that is deeply connected to our sense of suffering because we're grasping mm. after this idea that what it is about is that it'll be pleasant. That I'm saying something here. If anyone has mistaken what I'm saying here for that I'm having this constant experience of being pleasant, that's not at all what I'm talking about. Liberated life is not about having a pleasant life. It is unbound and un tethered even to the idea of it has to be pleasant. And when I allow the the truth of all of it, even the unpleasant stuff, especially, frankly, especially the unpleasant stuff, mm. is the thing. Like, that's it. Yeah. Like, that is it. Joy, I am entitled to the access to in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that unpleasantness. Joy is still possible. That's not the opposite of joy is not unpleasant, right? So I can have joy in the midst of unpleasantness, discomfort, unsatisfactoriness, the thing we sort of broadly say is suffering, but gets, you know, that's that's sort of like over the top for people. So I just say like, take it down to the sort of like ordinary level. If we think of suffering as sort of big, huge life events, Um, but rather the ordinary experience of a life turned upside down, uncomfortable. It's awry, not just not what we want, damn it. Like not what we want. And joy is to be found in the midst of that, not despite it, not around it, not once we get on the other side of it, but literally in the midst, not ice cream. (laughs) I said this the other day, not ice cream in the midst of our mess. So I'm not talking about finding the, you know, the golden needle in the scratchy haystack. I'm talking about the haystack. There's joy in the experience and choosing the experience of this haystack with all its scratchiness. Mm. And it, it calls for divesting <laughs> in searching for the golden needle. Nah, which kind of, you know, brings up the whole at least Western world, U.S.-based obsession with happiness these days, which I have very mixed feelings about. I think that's why I withdrew happiness and I yeah, said, yeah, yeah, contentment because yeah. you know, like the mad quest, but I think causes as much suffering as it does uh, um, anything else. So, and this feels like a good, a good sort of place to come full circle because I think we're heading there anyway. Which so, if I offer, you know, we're hanging out. This is a good life project. If I offer out that term to live a good life, mm. what bubbles up for you? First and foremost, to live the life that I have, right? To live that life fully, to to really root in that the life that I have fully with a great love and appreciation for all the aspects of it, the darkness, the the, the difficulty, the challenges, the hardness, as well as the you know, bright and sunny days that we have right now. And, you know, but we'll soon be clouds. And it's like not oh oh and it'll be clouds and so that's awful and you know, now I'm going to resist the clouds. I'm going to fully enjoy the bright and sunniness of the day. And then I'm going to fully enjoy what there is in the cloudiness that like actually helps me work better and kind of like focus. And so I think that that's what for me, a good life begins with the sense of fully rooting in contentment and appreciation. I really want to say appreciation in the life that you have 
in this very moment. Not the life you're going to have, not the life you should have had, not the life you might one day have, but the life you have in this very moment. And, and then it just unfolds into the next moment and then into that moment. And every time we're not feeling that sense of it, it's like the active practice is to search for the gratitude and the appreciation of the experience you're having right now. So that that's the ground for me. I mean, we could talk about all of these other things that, you know, they enhance life and they're, you know, they're a lovely thing. Like we were talking before we began about like, you know, toys and tech mm-hmm. stuff and, you know, gear and things like that. And it's awesome. And, and, uh, but if we, can't, if we can't root ourselves in, in the moment and, and real gratitude and appreciation for the, the complexity of who we are and the basic goodness of our, of our being just right here and right now, then everything else is, uh, is, is a, just a wish. It's just a dream that's out there somewhere that, that produces anxiety and, ultimately suffering thank you thank you hey thanks so much for listening we love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter and if you enjoy that too and if you enjoy what we're up to i'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast it really helps us get the word out you can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.